You're listening to Sound Funding, conversations with Europe's leading experts in impact investing. Today, I spoke with my friend and one of my heroes in the impact investing space, Arnaud Gillen. Arnaud is the co-founder of Impact, one of Europe's most influential impact advisory and management services companies. He's a troubleshooter for the industry, always on the lookout for ways to get more talent and investment in the sector. And I sometimes wonder when he finds the time to sleep. I'm your host, Ryan Grant-Little. Thanks for joining. Arnaud, can you tell us a little bit about what Impact does? Hi, Ryan. So we're based in Luxembourg, headquartered in Luxembourg. And so basically, our mission is to facilitate the development of impact investing at large by helping the creation and the management of impact investment structures. But we're talking about setting up funds mainly, but we've also set up foundations, holding structures, segregation vehicles. Basically, what we say to our partners, tell us what's your impact investment strategy you want to deploy, the kind of investors you have in mind. And we try to find and help them operate the best investment structure. So what we've done, we've set up 33 funds since 2007. So 15 years ago, we started. And these 33 funds are investing pretty much in all SDGs. We started with a microfinance and then being brought by our, our partners, EIB, KFW, the development banks at the beginning, into the other topics of renewables, energy efficiency, then agriculture, conservation, now we've just launched an education fund, a health tech fund, etc. And so basically what we bring to these experts of each investment strategy is to say, I mean, this is how you set up a fund. Uh, this is our, our investment structure. This is what you need to think of. And so it goes from legal aspect, governance, operational, impact measurement and management, financial structuring. And so that's what we aim to do with all the actors that we work with. And they could be very big, like I mentioned, the development banks. Very small, first-time investment advisors. We've worked a lot with the first-time investment advisors. But also foundations, licensed for profits like Conservation International, WBF, for example, investment banks, established investment managers, etc. And basically, if you like, I mean, we are a big corp, so we are a mission-driven company. And so our mission is to kind of share the knowledge that we gain ourselves and that we gain by creating these various structures with as many actors as possible. That's what is, in a way, quite interesting in our job, being independent and being able to work with anybody in the impact industry. So we have 50 people based in Luxembourg, two in in Mauritius. So still a very small company, but somehow uh, growing because we have a lot of, and we'll discuss that, we have a lot of, uh, uh, let's say, different kinds of projects and services. Because beyond setting up funds, we have the management, we have a licensed uh, fund management company in Luxembourg. We have the same in, in Mauritius. So we provide uh, independent directorship services. We provide uh, support to board of directors. We specifically also support even existing funds into the impact measurement and management, SFDR and all this stuff. So it starts to be um, quite large and the kind of support. But as I said, the interesting thing is that we are not per se a manager. We don't manage our own education for this, etc. But thanks to that, we are able to work with uh, pretty much uh, everyone. So somebody, an organization has a pot of money, they want to turn it into impact. And so they come to you and find out how to do this in the legal, in the financial, and getting everything structured properly. Is that basically it in a yep. nutshell? Yeah, exactly that. And then we see together what's the best structure. And it's not always a fund. It's 90% of what we've done our funds 
But uh, no, it, it's not always a fun. And like, for example, these days we're discussing with private banks. They want to get into impact investing. They don't know what kind of products they could uh, provide to their private bank clients in impact investing. And so we're guiding them. So we kind of uh, impact advisors to them. So you see, it's really diverse, the kind of uh, support. As long as it's impact investing, thereby the name of our company, it's only impact investing. And yeah, our mission is really to uh, make sure that we connect the two sides, the projects and the, uh, and the investors. Yeah, I see this happen a lot, especially with large corporates who decide that, you know, they decide that they want to launch their own impact fund, but they will be the only funders behind it. And in that case, a fund structure is largely designed to protect the limited partners and to build in this kind of fiduciary responsibility. But if it's all your own money, a lot of times it makes sense to invest it from your own balance sheet or set up a wholly owned subsidiary limited company. And that, yeah, I mean, that can simplify things quite a bit. Do you do this kind of work with corporates as well? Well, we've started a bit with some corporates. I would say that they are just starting to get into our world, uh, getting interested by first the products that we launch. And we and there are several funds that, are, that we have uh, set up that are invested by corporates. Also, they come from the climate angle, carbon credit angles and the voluntary carbon market. And so they start to look at uh, impact investing by the fact that uh, some high impact projects could generate some carbon credits. So basically, it also contributes to their own issues in the future. And so we have one fund that we we have uh, under management called Livelihoods Ventures that is working with 30 corporates, actually. And that's what they do. They use the money from the investors to finance high impact uh, carbon projects. And the only thing that goes back to the investors are carbon credits. So this is one way to interact with corporates, but other corporates that are interested by the topic of investment because it's for their long-term also strategy, whether in agriculture, renewables, or whatever. And there are others that are looking at this from their CSR, liquidity management point of view. And they say, well, why don't we invest? Just like foundations could do, just like any other investors could say 2%, 5%, 10% into some impact investing products. That's what I think is really interesting these days with impact investing. So in the past, it was only DFIs and, and the usual suspects and the really advanced impact investors. Now you see everybody's knocking on the doors of impact investing actors in general, and they want to be able to, to participate in a matter on another. I mean, it's not always easy to get them in because it's illiquid. It's uh, in most cases still risky investment strategies, but um I think that's really, that's not the golden age, but it's really starting to be a very interesting period, uh, let's say, moment for impact investing. And, and the good thing is that uh, we, I mean, the industry is sufficiently advanced and, and professional now to make it right. And all these uh, regulations about uh, if you see you're an impact fund, you need to disclose, you need to report, you need to, and you cannot name it anymore impact fund without showing it really in practice. That's the good thing that comes with the increase of demand. So, um, and who's enforcing that? Is it the public? Is it social media? Or is it actually regulators that are enforcing that type of thing? Yeah, well, that's the combination of all of them. I mean, because, uh, yes, indeed. Well, social media, yeah, might be. Well, especially if people are seen investing in uh, some projects that are in the press, etc. And so you see the FR is really cautious about that. So it's the social pressure from this point of view, which is really good. But it's also coming, and that's what we, we all need these days uh, with the planet. We, it, it comes from the top, from the regulator. So you may have heard of this Sustainable Finance Disclosure Regulation, SFDR, from the EU. And that's basically that. It's actually saying, well, 
okay, let's make it clear to investors that whenever they invest into a product, they are actually a sustainable impact or an easy product. And not just because of their name, but just because of the way they report. And so there is this whole big regulation coming, which is really has a massive impact for the whole industry. And then we could debate how difficult it is to implement because there are a lot of impact managers that are struggling to implement it. Even if in their DNA, they really focused on generating the impact. But the difficulty is, yes, but in practice, the SME needs to report on all these indicators. It's almost impossible to ask SME in Ghana to report this way. So, but we'll learn. I mean, it will, I mean it's, it's good to have this vision. And for sure, the first five years will not be perfect, but uh, we'll get there. And so for uh, the impact washing, the greenwashing, reputational risk, hopefully will be... But I mean, kind of mitigated with this regulation. But it's not only through the regulation; it's a whole set of all these aspects. But I think that's what I like also in our industry now. You see all these various movements to say, "Well, let's make it right." It's not because you're doing a market finance fund that you per se you're generating the impact. And so there's a big push from the the usual suspect impact investors, whether public or private, even pension funds now really, really cautious about when they invest in, they want to see whether an impact management framework has been well designed, whether they can report correctly, etc. So that's why there are a lot of actors coming back to us saying, okay, what are the others doing? And we've seen our own funds for 10, 15 years, but we don't know where the market is going. Can, can, we, can we get some pragmatic implementation tricks? Because yeah, in theory, well, we can do everything. But in practice, when you're underground, say, well, this is not possible. So how do others are doing? And that's a bit our role when I say, Part of our own theory of change is actually to share this knowledge within boundaries of confidentiality, obviously. But still, I mean, that's the that's the spirit of the industry to share the good practice. So the EU coming out with some new directives around around naming of impact funds and, and some requirements. Is that shifting where new funds are domiciling? I know that you mentioned that you have two employees in Mauritius. Mauritius was in a, a holding pattern for a few years in terms of not being able to domicile new funds there for a while. I know that in the Netherlands is becoming a very competitive region as well. What's happening? So as an organization that's based in Luxembourg and Mauritius to a smaller extent, are these still two key geographies for domiciling new funds or where is the momentum shifting? I think it's maybe there's not a shift, but there's an increase of options, a number of options for domiciling a fund for project developers. So let's take more issues for a moment. So yes, indeed, they were on the blacklist of the OEC tax transparency uh, report, and then they went on the blacklist of the FETF, uh, so anti-money laundering practices uh, report. So they were on the, on, the, on the gray list of the FETF, which led to putting them on the blacklist of the EU. So it was a no-go Mauritius for more than two years and even more before. Now they're back onto this whitelist. It'll take still a bit of time for investors to get back and comfortable to put their funds in Mauritius. It's mainly for public institutions, and, uh, EID and all the DFIs in Europe, etc. They're a bit cautious, though they really understand as well, if you talk to the internal teams, that are in charge of Africa, of all these uh, DFIs, they really would like to go back to Mauritius because they really understand that by helping the continent to develop their own financial centers, that you will really contribute to the development of the continent. So, I mean, if the, it's not the value, but if the holding structures are offshore and Delaware, Luxembourg, et cetera, does it really make sense if you really want to invest into the country, into Africa? 
So they would like to do more, but um, yeah, reputational risk management of these big institutions prevent them yet to go there. But for the moment, and we have our, our director, Christophe Mauritius, I think he's working on 10 new projects to be launched in the next two years in Mauritius. So people are coming back. And who's coming back? And these are corporates, foundations, all the U.S. investors as well. They're more, I mean, I think they're more comfortable than the EU ones. But I think it's changing. So that's some more shifts. What we see also in Africa is that we you see a lot of also other countries that are positioning themselves, like Rwanda. We've set up a fund just recently, an education fund with Chanson International. Very nice and very interesting income sharing uh, agreement principle to actually finance the students to get higher education. And then they are repaying their loans depending on what they earn actually and with a social minimum salary and there's sort of the minimum they don't have to repay they can wait anyway transfer international is very interesting uh, uh, project and that's the first fund in rwanda and so you have the Rwanda kigali international finance center that is positioning themselves to be a hub in at least east africa but across all africa just like to become more more senegal wants to be the same and so that's really nice in the sense that uh and to be a financial center, you need legislation, you need expertise, you need good service providers, you need to, the first success, etc. And I think for us as impact, I mean, yes, we're based in Luxembourg, but we're not married with Luxembourg. We find Luxembourg very convenient to set up funds, but we will, I mean, the projects, and that's our role, the project needs to be established where it makes sense. And in the case of Chanson, their main focus is Rwanda and surrounding countries. And some investors that are want to, willing to, to support them are really also here to support the economic development of Rwanda. So, I mean, might as well setting up the fund there. So that's what we see. So we see a lot of local uh, domiciles uh, being popping up everywhere. In Europe, uh, yeah, still Luxembourg is the leading fund center if you want to go for a regulated fund. Unregulated funds about 100 million, something like that. Uh, I mean, usually investors are really familiar with Luxembourg. Um, you have Paris coming, but it's for French investors. So if you set up a fund, 80% of your investors are French. You are a French uh, investment manager. Stay, stay in France and set up your fund there. There's also good legislation, etc. But as soon as you want to attract uh, German, Nordics, etc., etc., think of a it's not a more international one, but a more recognized uh, recognized international financial center. Meaning these investors are more used to invest into Luxembourg than investing in, in France. Maybe it would change. So that's for regulated structures. And I think uh, Luxembourg remains and will remain for the next few years to go to a um, place. When it comes to smaller structures, there is a bit more of a mix. And yes, the Netherlands is also a great uh, location for that quite flexible, uh, fast uh, to set up uh, structures. On top of it, for emerging market impact investing, they have also very good international relations with especially Africa, starting with double tax treaties. This is the intention is not to evade tax, but just to uh, pay taxes correctly where, where, where it is actually generated. So and not doubling these, uh, these taxes. And so the Netherlands is good in that sense. And they have a few structures that are really light touch and that we use we use quite a lot as well, including foundation. And you can set up a foundation in the Netherlands quite quickly 
And we have set up actually three foundations in the Netherlands to deploy an impact investment strategy. Uh, whereas in other countries, it's a bit more difficult because foundations are not meant to be to have a business activity. So they're meant to be, okay, this is money that you carve, that you put on the side somewhere, and it just grants this money gradually. But in the Netherlands, they understood that this could be done. So yeah, I think it's three or four projects that we have done this way. So that's why I say it's, it's not because, I mean, that's what we do with our partners. Usually they, so they talk always about a fund and we keep the term fund, but the fund may, may have a legal form, maybe structured different way. The fund meaning pooling different kind of investors to, to invest into a pool of assets, a pool of investments. This is the definition of a fund. You can do this in very different manners. So that's why I think it's nice because you see many more ways of structuring these investment structures and starting with the domicile. And obviously, lots of the government will not want me to say that, but uh, I think it's good for us in fact investing. And it's good also in the sense that you have this race for being the first domicile of impact investing, of climate finance, etc. Because all these places, they they are really because, I mean in competition with each other. Then this is really good. This is competition for the planet. So they make it easier and easier. While the EU puts a lot of pressure on regulation to make it correct, either. But so they they, they start to invent and to set up platforms. I mean, we have set up a climate finance accelerator, for example, in Luxembourg, where we help first time, second time climate fund managers to structure and launch their fund. And the Luxembourg government really understood that they need to do more than just saying, well, there's a loan, you can set up a fund. You need also to support the early days and the first two years and the death valley of of these fund initiators. And you see popping up everywhere, these kind of similar initiatives, different, but always to try to help more actors to get um, into that. And so I think it's quite interesting in that sense. So we're used to seeing technical assistance provided to the organizations on the ground that funds typically help. But now we're starting to see this level up and recognizing that there's need for this kind of technical assistance also for the funds themselves and for that landscape. Yeah, and there are many that I can name. Right? Convergence in Canada, they have also this fund set up grant where you can get up to, I don't know, half a million dollars or something like that to actually design your fund. You have the lab, the climate lab in the UK. You have, as I said, the Luxembourg. Uh, and there are some uh, UNEP initiated uh, similar kind of grants. Uh, if you are in the renewable energy space or sustainable energy space, and so, yeah, that's really good. I mean, in the Netherlands, you have the Dutch Good Growth Fund that also provides these uh, things. And yes, because it's, it, I mean, technically, it's not that difficult. I mean, obviously, the most difficult part in, in setting up is always a fundraising, that's for sure. But if you can get rid of the technicalities and so that you can hire someone who said, don't try and test yourself. Look, come with us. I have the answer to you. This is exactly the way you need to structure your fund then you, the financiator, can save time to actually focus on what is really key. Setting up your team, building your pipeline, and fundraising. These are the three things that any consultant cannot solve for you, and you have to do it yourself. And so if you're stuck in, ah, which domicile should I select? How do I draft a term sheet? How do I deal with SLDR? And you, you see, and you can spend 80% of your time on this, whereas... It's not a good use of your time because you are the only one to be able to do the rest. So it's good that there are these uh, supports uh, existing. And we're working on several other initiatives that will be launched very soon. 
I'm sure that some fund managers listening to this are rushing to scribble down the names of those organizations. I'll include those in the show notes of today's episode as well. If you can go back to 2015 or so when we met, 2015, 2016, I saw you you had a a webinar about blended funds, about about blended capital, structured funds. And I watched this and I was blown away by how much potential blended finance has for the impact sector. And it looked to me like the key to really unlocking its value. Then I got in touch with you and the rest is history. I still see that as a lot of potential, but still kind of seven years later, whatever, still feels like unlocked potential. What is blended finance and why is it so important in the impact space? Well, blended finance is, uh, so the definition is basically blending two types of financial support uh, from public and private. So you blend the public and the private money into the same structure. And so there are many different different ways you can blend these two types of, let's say, actors. But basically, the uh, in essence, the principle is that the public money is there to actually unlock more private capital by de-risking their investment. And there are different aspects. You can de-risk from a credit risk point of view, from a country risk, from an ethics risk, from a pipeline risk. And so... You so we have set up other so in total we have set up 33 funds in impact investing. So out of the 33, I think 25, something like that, they have a blended structure. And so you can have the blended structure. You mentioned technical assistance. This is already blended finance. If you help the project to be better and to therefore de-risk all the investors to invest into the project. So this is outside of the fund. You can just say also, ah, this investment strategy is really impactful, but generates only 4%, which for the risk that it is still is a bit too low return. So you blend it by kind of subsidizing the private money return. You say you have half percent, half of public money and half of uh, private investors. Then you say, well, I, I would just request 2% of return. So therefore, if the average return is 4, therefore, we can then propose a 6% return to the private investors and alpha. So this is an, on the return side. And then there is the internal blending within the investment structure where you could say, I have a first loss portion and a senior, a junior and a senior portion. And then the junior is invested by the public investors. So it's really invested. So it's not grant money. So it's really the whatever is the EU, or the, the German government or whatever government or foundations investing and are investors are shareholders into the fund and so they would receive their money back only after the senior meaning the private investors would have received their their money back so let's say you have a 100 million fund 80 million from private 20 million from public so if your fund loses 20 million still the private money isn't touched so they would receive their 80 million back and usually what we do is a combination of all these examples usually we set up a fund with a TA facility, technical assistant facility on the side. Then in the fund, we have this junior piece and then the senior piece. And so usually we say, well, the, the senior would receive their money back first, but even before that, they would receive any return generated by the fund first. So back to the example of 4%, and we say, well, usually we say, well, they would have a target dividend of 6%. So we would first distribute whatever return comes back from the portfolio to the private investors, to the senior investors, up to their 6%. And if there's still return being generated, then we give the 2% 
my previous example to the public one. And if there is, even after that, still some return being generated, then we spread it among the, the two types of shared shareholders. So we've done, let's say, 17, well, I said 25, but the, the 17 more complex one of these, where we have uh, junior, mezzanine, senior, and even notes being, uh, being settled. Um, it worked quite well, but the challenge is always the same. Who are these first loss providers? Are they ready to take this risk? Do they understand their catalytic effect? So that's on one side. That's the most difficult part, I would say. And that's why usually we say to our partners, yes, maybe it's good if you have blended structure, but if you don't need, go without. Because it's tricky to get this money from these first loss providers because they all come and they say, ah, okay, good, it's an African fund. My money needs to go to Malawi, to Ghana, and uh, Mozambique. Ah, but sorry, but it's the regional fund. Sorry, our money can only go to these three countries. And then I buy stocks. And then the reporting, all these things. So it's, it looks really nice on paper. In practice, it's difficult to, uh, to raise. And we've seen funds being stuck for two years. Everything was ready. Private investors were lined up, committed in a way. But they were stuck because they promised to the senior investors 20% or 25%, don't remember, of first loss money. And they had only 10%. So the fund cannot be launched. Mm-hmm. Even if they had already commitments for much more than the, what they targeted as first loss. So you need to be careful when you sell these lended structures. If you have a strategy that is sufficiently yielding for the risk that you're taking, and if private investors don't need, don't tell your private investors you will get uh, first loss money. Uh, do it. Still try to raise this money. And it's only a cherry on the cake later on. Hey, by the way, guys, we found first loss money. Everybody says, wow, cool. They even put more. Then. So that's probably one of the tricks. It can be challenging also for foundations or government agencies to sell internally or you know to their stakeholders the idea of catalytic first loss capital in that it can look like you know public money or charitable philanthropic money subsidizing commercial returns which is a shame because of course you know public money does this all the time when it's trying to work in a certain direction through incentive programs all kinds of things and you know ideally we would look at the impact and this is such a good way to scale impact but it can look it, the optics can be very challenging i agree and because it's so direct here, you look in the same structure, ah, okay, this is our role. And therefore, that's why they receive 6%. So for them, it's, oh, I'm basically giving my money to these private investors. But I agree with you because we tell them, look, but when, what do you do when you do provide a grant, a direct grant to this project? What do you think will be next? Actually, this grant will help this project. And this project will then be financed by uh, private investors. And these private investors will somehow benefit from your grant. Here... The thing is that think of it, it's revolving. You're not giving one time your money. The 20 million in my 100 million fund will be recycled all the time. And you can get even your money back even with 2%. But thanks to that, you managed to support 100 million worth of projects. So yes, there still needs to be kind of, it's not about training these institutions, they understand. It's just about convincing, just saying this is a good way. And there are some actors, governments, foundations, who got um, got the point. I mean, we worked with growth in, in Africa 
uh, many years ago when I was still working with them, and they had uh, backing them Shell Foundation. Shell Foundation understood from the outset that that's what they needed to do. They weren't here in the first place. But I understand that for a lot of foundations, it's not possible. I, my, my program money needs to go ground, and my endowment money needs to go into traditional investments. And no, let's make it two, and so you will have a greater interest. But uh, yeah, still a lot to do. And that's why I know there are some initiatives, like the Demeter Initiative, that is being uh, cooked at the moment for climate funds in general, that are trying to facilitate this by creating a facility that would pool all this donor money and do the work for them to analyze how to uh, invest as first loss. So you don't need to always pitch back this or that big foundation for your first one. So I know that there are some initiatives like that that, that they try to uh, facilitate the access to first loss. But I agree with you. I mean, the first one we've done like this was 15 or 17 years ago. And still, I don't see really massive ones. There are some. Huh? Most of the funds that we have created like that are in the, the 500 million, 700 million. Huh? So, so it's not that there are none. But um, I would have thought that uh, it would have exploded completely, the whole of impact investing. It's common, but it's still not that easy. Switching gears now to a topic that in the mid-2000s was everywhere in the impact space, but I think has been a bit on hiatus lately, the theme of impact bonds. So I remember, you know, seven years ago, you couldn't go to, there was always a panel, there was always a new paper about social impact bonds as the solution to kind of every problem. I remember Tim Draymond from Social Innovation Generation in Canada called it the third rail because it was so electric in the sector. But I think the experience has been mixed at best. There was an attempt to try to use this to solve all kinds of problems, uh, social environmental problems, but not all of it worked. And it's, as far as I could tell, it's been less of a prominent topic over the past few years. You're about to launch an impact bond platform. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, just to say that first, we are not specialists of social impact bonds, which are, in essence, not real bonds. These are just contracts between the various stakeholders around this and the social impact projects. And it has been called bonds maybe more for marketing purposes, but it doesn't work like a bond. So that's one thing. And so these development impact bonds, social impact bonds, they are treating very, very tricky social and environmental problems that are somehow investable, but not that much. And so that way you take the um, the impact of taker as part of this contract so that if you generate the impact, then you would receive some money back, et cetera, et cetera. So this is really a contract between these various parties. Whereas what we are uh, looking at when we talk about impact bonds, these are simply debt instruments to finance directly an impact project. And so, oh, so just like if you were lending to this project. Oh, that's going to so, be much easier. <laughs> yeah, well, it's much easier. It's I mean, it's private debt. I mean, uh, in, in impact investing, you have mainly private uh, equity and private debt. And so with the private debt aspects, we have done quite a lot over the last uh, 15 years. What we have seen is the fact that, um, so, and usually we launch this into, into a fund. So the fund is basically extending loans to microfinance institutions, to SMEs, to projects, renewables, or off-grid solar energy. So these are private debt funds. And so usually what is this? It's a contract between the funds and the project or the SME or the MFI. So you basically signed a loan contract, loan agreement, promissory note, call it the way you want. There are different ways to, to structure it. But this is basically a contract by which you say, well, I grant you this loan, and these are the conditions of the loan covenants and interest and, and 
and then repayment schedule. Here, the impact bond is to say, well, it's actually the project that issue or the entity that issues itself a bond, like in the capital market, like corporates, like banks, like development banks are issuing on the capital market. So they raise that saying, I need two or three million. And so they raise it in a manner that is understandable by, I would say, even more traditional investors. And so and that's what we call the bond. Right? And then the bond could be listed on the stock market. The bond could be traded in between investors. So it's not a one-to-one contract. This bond can be sold to another transfer to another investor. So because it's, it, you're creating a security, whereas the contract that we have in the private debt is really one-to-one relationship between the fund and the project. So here the bond, the intention is to facilitate even more the financing of these impact projects by using the power of capital market. So what we intend to do, and we're not inventing the wheel. So there are a lot of segregation platforms that are existing everywhere that are helping corporates or other entities to create their bonds. But here we're focusing on facilitating the technical process of issuing a bond. So it's about uh, legal structuring. It's about uh, linking them directly to the stock market, to clearing system that we use, so Euroclear, clear streams that are used to transfer these securities between investors and, and all the just the financial administration of a bond. You need to pay the interest. You need to have the, I mean, the link with the investors and the bank account and the audit process. So we do all of this. And on top of this, we would add a layer that is related to the impact aspect of the bond. So what will this money be used for? That's the easy way. That's what we call the use of proceeds. So this project will do actually this and that and that. And so this and that and that leads to, so what is the impact generated? And so what are the targets in terms of an impact point of view? And then the bond issuer, if you like, or the bond beneficiary, we need to provide information to our bond platform and to explain on an annual basis where they stand on the impact that they, they intended to generate. And so, I mean, now after 15 years, we've worked so many with so many funds and we are in working groups on IMM, impact management and management of everywhere. I mean, the GIN, then uh, also with the EU, with the financial authorities in Luxembourg, et cetera. So our role as impact is to facilitate the financial structuring of this bond, but also making sure that anything that comes out of our platform is bulletproof in terms of impact measurement and management. It goes through the green bond principles. It is a green bond, a green impact bond. It could be a sustainable, uh, sustainability-linked uh, impact bond, and so on and so forth. And we are already working with some entities that are keen to uh, see different programs being organized. For example, we would have a program on sustainable land use, so that bonds issued under this uh, sustainable land use program will make sure that they actually disclose, report, and, and fit within the good principles of sustainable land use investment. Gender, another thing. We're in discussion with 2X, the 2X challenge uh, that you may know. So this big initiative, big uh, worldwide movement to, to promote and support gender-smart investment, we may have a gender program. So our intention is to just use the tools that are already out there in the financial capital markets, but making it more accessible to smaller projects. So you don't need to have to need to, to issue 100 million bonds. If you start with 5 million projects, 3 million projects, you can come to us and we'll try to find, well, not trying to find, but we'll try within a few weeks to launch your bond. At the beginning, you need to come with your investors because we, we don't have the investors lined up yet. But hopefully in two years from now, 
I mean, the platform will be known as a go-to high-impact bond platform. And hopefully the off-takers will have them as well because they look at, okay, what's available in the platform. So this will also facilitate the financing. This is the intention to say it's not only how do you do to get finance and also for investment advisors. For some of them, they say, I'd like to set up my first fund, but I have no track record. So when I want to convince an investor, they'll say, okay, what's your track record to do a deal? I don't have. Well, maybe there are ways like bond issuance where they could do one, two, three, four deals with their club of investors or one, two, three, four uh, investors. And then afterwards they say, well, then now, see, I've done five months. Now I can actually pretend that I can run the fund that would invest into 20 transactions like that. So that's one way also to help, helping at the project level, helping investment advisors, but even established ones, they feel like, oh, it's interesting because that's my way to organize my co-investment model. I'm already managing a 50 million fund investing in, I don't know, conservation projects in Africa. And oh, here is a really nice 10 million project. Shit, I cannot put 10 million in my 50 million fund. It's not good for diversification. I can only put five. Well, I go through the platform, I securitize this into one bond of 10 million. I put five of the 10 million into my fund and I sell the remaining five to other investors that I've seen. So it's a way to facilitate co-investment as well. Interesting. And so one of the features then also is the liquidity, because a lot of times debt financing in the impact space is long term. It's very hard to get out of it midway through. And now you're creating a marketplace for it, making it more liquid. Yeah, this is it. But this is uh, also linked to another initiative we are developing with Stilvan Gupi, Ex-Antelia Climate Fund and uh, Cardano Development, which is a liquidity guarantee facility. So we're currently uh, in discussion with the European Union uh, to set up an entity or basically a fund that would provide a guarantee contracts to impact investors that are investing into in illiquid impact funds so that if they have to exit, so illiquid impact funds, so 10 years, you're stuck for 10 years in the fund. If they have to exit after five or six years, the fund cannot redeem you, cannot repay you. But we, through our guarantee contract, we are here standing to be able to buy your stakes into this impact fund under certain valuation conditions that are pre-agreed so that there is no question of negotiation when you need the money. But in five days, you have a big portion of the money that are behind the, the stakes into this impact fund. And then the name of this facility is October. So October will then try to find in the market a buyer. So within six months, nine months, we'll be able to sell it back into the market and give the money back to the guaranteed party. This is another aspect where, I mean, we see it's really a challenge in impact investing because by nature, impact investing is liquid. And so uh, only say microfinance investment funds, three years investment, you can have a portfolio that comes back a lot. And so you can give some kind of liquidity to your investors. But I mean, 90% of the impact investment strategies are in the long term, 10 years, 15 years. You cannot chop the tree after two years just because you want to exit the fund. No, it needs to grow for 25 years. So we're trying through this other initiative to say, well, okay, let's try to bring to the sector some technical financial instruments to still not put more pressure into the investment advisor to exit more quickly in their impact projects to be have the time to generate the impact. But by bringing this kind of, I wouldn't call them derivative, but, but this kind of instruments that, that you can put on top of a fund. And the aim, long-term goal, is to give access to retail investors. 
because regulation prevents retail investors to get into impact investing by the illiquid nature of impact investing. So our aim, our long-term goal with impact is to democratize access to impact investing at large. And it's by this series of all these tools, instruments that I mentioned, the impact bond, the new types of funds, uh, and uh, so these liquidity instruments that one day, hopefully not too far uh, from now, uh, will be able to, to give access to people in the street to impact investing. So you're really trying to mainstream impact investing. I notice every time and through the years, every time I mention an issue, a problem, something that I've identified in the impact investing sector, you're always working on something to fix it already. And so, I mean, you're basically troubleshooting the whole sector as always. And so thank you for doing that for the rest of us. Yeah, we've been but, uh, but, but that's basically our, in a way, um, positioning our role. This is, we are not the guys on the ground. We don't have money. We are not the investors. So our, our aim is to say, well, where is it blocking impact investing? Ah, it's difficult to set up a fund. Okay, we'll help you set up a fund. It's not that easy to manage a fund as if you know how to invest, but still managing a fund from a legal, from a risk management, ah, this is not that easy. Okay, impact, that's that's uh and so you see wherever we find it, uh, there's a bit of a blocking. That's part of our own mission. We are a B Corp, we're a mission-driven company. So our own mission is to try to find a solution. That's what is also exciting. Is it even really uh from a pure brain point of view, you face very technical, financial, legal, operational challenge for uh, generating more impact. So we have obviously very bright people in our in our team that are really eager to to be confronted on the next wall of impact investing and how to jump over the wall, uh, trying to find a solution together. Do you think impact investing at the retail, the mass level, is on the horizon? Is it far out? Is it? Are we going to see it soon? Soon, I don't think so. Hopefully, my kids, uh, for them, it would be, uh, yeah, for sure. That's really easy. The thing is that there's so so much pressure now from next generation. I mean, they want to see their money well invested. For the moment, there is already sustainable investment, which is not yet impact investing. And so these uh, renewable funds, listed equities, kind of that, this is coming. I think the next stage to impact investing will be coming. But at the same time, we should not dream that it's just funded by retail investors. There are some strategies that are too risky, too difficult to understand, etc., that would remain with the usual suspects. And we need them, but we need them to move from the easy part to the more difficult part of impact investing and let the rest of the crowd, meaning the retails, do the renewables in Africa. The things that are really that we start to see as well understood, not not risky. I'm not saying it's not risky. But it's it starts to be well understood. The pipeline is there, the track record of a lot of fund managers is there, etc. So we need to give access to the retail so that they fill in the, the slots of these more advanced impact investors. And these more advanced impact investors, they go to the next and the more difficult part. We have uh, 17 SDGs, we don't have one or two. So I have a lot to do. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. My last question is always: what is one tip for the place in your case where you live or where you work? That's not in a guidebook, you know, a tip for someone who's coming to spend a weekend there. What would you recommend? I spoke recently with Elodie Donjon from the European Investment Fund, and she had a tip about where to take in great live music in Luxembourg. So that one's already taken. <laughs> okay, I cannot say this one. Okay. Look, I'm, I'm Belgian. Uh, so uh, in Belgium, we like beers, obviously. And so I would say that uh, from Luxembourg, 50k from Luxembourg, you can visit very nice, very small, very uh, local, uh, I would say, 
12 or 15 breweries. And so if someone wants uh, names, etc., I can draw a map and then organize for you a tour of these uh, breweries. And this would be really nice because it, you will have to go through the nature of uh, Luxembourg and then the south of Belgium, which is also very green and, and, and very nice. And that's why, as you say, uh, I live, uh, I commute uh, to Luxembourg uh, every day. I just live next to the border in my forest. And that's what I like uh, also for, for, my, for my own kids to see that. That is what I think uh, Luxembourg is nice for. It's a village, Luxembourg. And you really quickly outside of the village into the woods, into the nature. So it's not one name, but I can give you the list of 10 so we'll, nice breweries. We'll put those along with a whole bunch of other links in the show notes that people can find and will hopefully be going through with an Uber or a designated driver from place to place. I should have guessed. Okay. I, I do recall that you like beer and, I, and through the course of the last many years, you and I have had a few of them together. <laughs> yeah, sure. And, and many more to come. And many more to come. Arno Kilin, thank you so much for taking the time today. Thanks, Ryan. Have a good day. See you soon. You can find out more about EVPA at www.evpa.eu.com, including information on its training academy and how you can become a member. Remember to subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening to it now to hear more stories like this one.